Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I am Pat Rulo, here with a recent Firebird Book Award winning author to share with you. She is Laura DeVore, and her winning book is titled Darkness Was My Candle, An Odyssey of Survival and Grace. With an advanced degree in clinical psychology and recognized as a national expert and a catalyst for change, Laura is also known as a powerful storyteller. She is a respected professional and has experienced trauma that once lay in a dark inner world trapped and wrapped in shame, confusion, and a ravaged nervous system. Laura is a survivor of abuse, sex trafficking, illegal pharmaceutical drug research, and institutional abuse, and she can speak for those like her who have been silenced for decades. I am just so looking forward to this conversation. A lot to unwrap here. Welcome to the network, Laura. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here, and thank you again for the award. You are so welcome. Congratulations on that. I was I was thrilled as well. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, Laura, I know that this had to have been a difficult book to write. It's a memoir of a life that is clearly unimaginable. So before we dig into the book, let's maybe step back a bit, share just a bit about your life so folks understand the reason and the purpose for your having written this book. Certainly. I actually had started off writing an entirely different book. Um, It was more of a spiritual autobiography, actually. So it was more about the end of my life. And I was at a writing writing mentor's um, doing some research for her in California, and we were about to take a trip to um, interview elders on the Yakima Reservation for a book she was writing at the time. And lo and behold, the research I was doing for her, suddenly on the screen, the words Elgin State Hospital came up, which is a state hospital I'd been committed to at age 18, the the summer after my freshman year in college. And I realized in that moment and the moments later when Dina and I talked about it that I still, all those years later, and this was seven years ago, still held shame about that, had never talked to anyone other than in therapy many years before. And by the end of that trip with Dina, my life had been sort of, and my writing had been turned around 180 degrees. And I began to see that it was essential that I write about my full history because there's so many people who have not ever had a voice and so many people who died in institutions like that. And and I've met so many relatives of people who were institutionalized in that era this was back in the 1960s, who still hold shame about what their relatives went through, not understanding what was really occurring. So, so, so that's in part why I wrote the book, is to be able to have a voice for those who've had none. And also to expose parts of the dark history of, of the psychiatric world and of many systems, for that matter. Mm-hmm. One of the systems I'm fascinated with, uh, because it still does occur, is the illegal pharmaceutical drug research. Can you just touch on that for a moment? Yes. Well, one of the things that happened to me, so I'm a freshman in college. I had a very, I did a very stupid thing. I took a handful of aspirin, um, and then I made myself throw up 
and went to the dorm mother. The dorm was closing, and I had nowhere to go, having been a foster uh, in the foster care system throughout high school. And back in those days, they didn't have transitional programs for youth like they increasingly are today. And and I was also being stalked by a man, 50 years old, and I'm 18 years old. I was working part time at a um, hospital as a nursing assistant. And it terrified me, so I quit my job, and now I learned that the dorm is closing, and I have nowhere to go, and I have no money, and I haven't been able to find another job. And so I had this irrational act um, and made myself throw up because I didn't really want to die. I realized that it was a stupid thing to do, and I went to the dorm mother, and she told me she'd help me to find another place to live, and she was just going to put me in a taxi and send me across town to get checked out medically. Well, from the emergency room, I was then sent to a place called Illinois State Psychiatric Institute, and I didn't know it at the time. Um, Well, I didn't have a choice when they sent me there. I was told I could just, I needed to go there for a few days. It was a new young adult unit, and they'd help me get my feet back under me. They wouldn't let me out, and they were doing pharmaceutical research. I didn't know that for many years until... Much later, I found a woman named Dr. Sidney Krampitz who had worked at that hospital, and eventually they got so frustrated with me because I refused to take the drugs, and I did everything to thwart them, thwart them, including running away. They had me eventually committed to the worst state hospital in the system, Elgin State Hospital, the one that showed up on the screen. And it, if it had not been for Sidney Kramp- Krampitz and her commitment to getting me out and risking her entire career to do do that, I wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. I've been told again and again that in that era people did not get out. Mm-hmm. I've been told by someone who was administrator who worked at that hospital during that time, people did not get out. <sighs> and what I later learned in my research is that our, our nation has used thousands of vulnerable citizens mm-hmm. in, as research subjects. And, and I was just one of many of these that were considered, quote, less desirable. And when I was committed to the worst state hospital in that system, to me, it felt like I had done something wrong and I had tremendous shame. But it also happened to newborn, institutionalized children, Native Americans, African Americans, military, our own military personnel were unsuspecting subjects, as, as well as mental patients. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And sadly, it is still going on today. People don't want to admit that, but um, it, it, That's right. it, it clearly is. So, um, That's right. you know, we haven't learned, we haven't changed, and I don't know what it takes to, to get away from that, if, if you ever can. Once you have people in power, um, I guess you lose yours. I, I'm not really sure how to, how to understand that. So then your book, when you saw that hospital on the screen, that you had to put this out on paper in a different format as more of a memoir of what really happened. So maybe just share the writing of that book. Because I already had an amazing uh, writing mentor who who believed in me and believed in the the writing of the book, it's as though the the waters opened for me or um, everything opened to support me. So, for instance, I work at a mental health organization, and I was gifted the time to write but still being paid full salary. So I worked part-time and could write Mm part-time. And there was such, so many almost miraculous things that happened as I wrote the book, like the refinding of Sidney Krampus, the woman who'd gotten me out of Elgin, and reconnecting with other people. And and just lots of small, amazing synchronicities and miracles Mm -hmm. happened through the writing of the book. 
the writing of the book, there were only a few parts that were challenging. And during that time, I was actually at Dina Metzger's, my writing mentor in, in Topanga, and um, living in her writing studio for a month and writing every day and then working with her. So I was able to work out the most challenging parts of the writing while I was with her and had that support. Mm-hmm. And then I had tremendous support back in Minnesota where I live from the organization that I worked with, including an editor, someone who could work with me and brainstorm and edit with me, an incredible young woman named Anne Marie. And someone else asked me in an interview if I wrote it to heal. And and I don't believe I did because I'd already done so much healing. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, there was a whole nother level of healing that came up to look at and to work through as I wrote the book. And also, you you can't write and re-look at your history and, and not see it from a slightly different perspective. And what I kept seeing again and again and again from the time I was a very young child, a three-year-old actually, that I had had one, what I call them is um, angels wearing human skin and the face of compassion who showed up again in my life. And so I write about those individuals as well. And Sidney Krampus was was just one of many. And so it was, in many ways, it was was an exhilarating experience. And then um, the last half of the book is about all the synchronicity. Throughout the book, you meet people who who changed my life. But um, towards the end of the book, you find other things that changed my life related to spirituality Mm -hmm. and meditation. And, uh, and and that happened even when I was a child. When I was nine, or no, seven, I'm sorry. And actually the picture on the front of my book is me as a seven-year-old. So it was during that time I discovered, you know, my mother was a prostitute and she let me run wild. And one day I heard music from a church and I wandered inside of it and I was like, just so drawn to the music I went and sat in the choir loft it was a Saturday and they were rehearsing and I sat in the choir loft and felt like God was raining down on my head and after that I discovered the Lutheran Church and the Methodist Church and those were the major churches in town and I would go every week so three times a week I was in a church listening to choir rehearsal and that took me into profound transcendent States. I, I really felt like the God of mystery was raining down on me. And and so throughout the book, there are moments like that, that, that buffer the, the trauma and, and some of the horrors that I, that I lived through. Wow, that's just so poignant. The picture on the cover as a seven-year-old is just so haunting. Um, you talk about being in the extreme dark and light. And there's a quote, I guess, on your website where it says, my life has been one of extreme dark and life-giving light. Over time, I've not only moved through post-traumatic growth, but beyond as I'm transcending all previous limitations to living a luminous life, and you can too. And I think that is so, so hopeful and beautiful. And now from this life, this dark life that you, that you led, you now give this life-giving, luminous life to others through your work. So maybe tell us how that, right. how, the, how did, 
How did that happen? You could have obviously done anything with your life after what you went through. How did right. you land into the position and the work that you do today? Uh, well, I when I got when I was eventually discharged from Elgin State Hospital, I went back to college, and because I didn't learn to read till the end of third grade, and it was a substitute teacher who had a caring and compassion to ask me why I think why I thought I had trouble, and one of the reasons is I needed glasses, and they always sat me in the back of the room. I couldn't see a thing. So that was one reason, and she kept me after school for the week or so that she was there, and I had the breakthrough I needed to learn how to read, and I became an avid reader. But I still, deep inside, which I think most traumatized individuals carry, is belief systems that are formed when we're young, when the trauma happens. Mm -hmm. And I still carried the belief that I wasn't smart enough to go to graduate school. And I was working with deaf-blind children, and I had an amazing supervisor, and we were off for the summer. And she really pushed me to, to take a couple of classes that summer in graduate school because she had noticed that I was gift. she felt I was gifted in working with the most troubled children and always had breakthroughs with them when other people couldn't. So I, I went to graduate school that summer, and I loved it, and I stayed in, and I don't know that it was a conscious choice at the time, but I ended up gravitating to the psych department. In retrospect, I think there was a part of me that wanted to figure out if there was a decent, if there was a decent way of helping people to heal. Mm -hmm. And and I was in a wonderful program that was very supportive. And <clears throat> so I graduated in clinical psych. I I did. Um, an internship both with uh, working with adults as well as children and families. And for quite some time, I was a therapist. And then I, I over the years, moved on. I started working with children with, end, with families who took children home to die. So worked with end-of-life care and did in-home family therapy. And that, that totally changed my life, took me back into that transcendent realm and that, that realm of, of spirit day after day after day mm -hmm. and prior to those that job I really was in a temporary spiritual no man's land and so eventually I, I moved I was invited to apply for a job at another hospital to create a, the very first um, integrative cancer cancer care program for adults and and um, a program uh, called Cancer Guides. And through that, I met a man named Dr. James Gordon, who ha is the founder and director of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine out of Washington, D.C. And he had ca he called me one day. I was met by, I, I met him through um, a good friend named Penny. And, and he called me and he said, Laura, I want you to help me create a national program with what you're doing there, because I'm hearing such incredible things about it. And so I did, and then I became a faculty member with the center's professional training in mind-body medicine. And that that work has taken me all over the world. Mm. So I, I've been to Haiti during the worst earthquake. I've been to Parkland after the shootings there. Um, we worked with firefighters after 9-11. I've been to the Middle East and so on and so forth. So, And that is all contract work, but it has not only helped me to help others who've been traumatized and helped help traumatized communities, 
mm-hmm. but also created a really deep practice of um, mind-body awareness, of mindfulness, because, and that's what we teach other people to do, how to move through their trauma. Because, of course, when we're traumatized, the nervous system um, ends up getting rather confused and, and is hypervigilant and gets um, turned on very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so we teach people how to regulate their own nervous system and to move through trauma. And so that's some of my work. And then I've done a lot of work in Minnesota, both at a wonderful organization called Prairie Care, which is really really working at doing things right in the world of mental health, and they're the organization who have supported me in writing this book. And then I've done a lot of contract work, including working with homeless youth, Mm -hmm. working on Native American reservations, both in Minnesota as well as in South Dakota. There's so many areas for you to touch. I'm happy that work is being done is it enough? Is it more awareness that we need? Maybe walk us through that. What can the person do who's listening to this to help to improve the situation? You know, I, be- I believe change happens from the inside out, which means, first of all, from the inside of each one of us. And, and change begins with awareness. So I think that's the first step. Mm-hmm. And you know, the woman who came into a woman who came into my life when I was nine and had already had my first suicide attempt was the very first person she told who told me that they loved me. I didn't even know what love was, mm. and I, I I surely would have committed suicide had it not been for Dale Foss. Wow. And I can remember the day that she was moving, and I collapsed into her arms, sobbing, and she just held me and rocked me, and I'd never had that kind of attention as a child. And she kept soothing me and saying, I love you. I love you. You're a good girl. And I'd take you with me if I could, but I can't because you're not mine. And as she said she loved me, something came alive in me. And I remember it was, it was, you know, now I didn't know the word epiphany at that point, but it, it literally was a spiritual experience. It was a spiritual epiphany. And I had this moment of, ah, that's why I'm here, to learn how to feel this thing called love and learn how to give it and receive it. Mm. And that's why we're all here. That's why we're all here. What I think is really important is to find the ways in which we hold back and which we're not loving and to begin to work with those within ourselves. You know, when I think of of Elgin State Hospital and the incredible cruelty there, incredible suffering and cruelty, what I'm aware of is that all the people that work in those systems, whether we're talking about prison guards or we're talking about the the kind of attendants that are at state institutions, what ends up happening is they end up in a constant chronic state of fear. Their fear of the people... They're, they're, they're taught to be afraid of the people that they're looking after. And, I, and I've done work with prison guards who won't even sit in a regular chair. They have to sit against the back wall. And what I've been told is they never sit with their back exposed. And so, so, so awareness and working with them was bringing attention to, to their awareness. And what would it mean to love yourself enough to also be willing to respect yourself 
and take care of yourself. That means doing regular practices, whether it's exercise or walking or breathing techniques. And, you know, I could lay out a hundred of them. Mm-hmm. So you, and that's, that's an, that's a radical act of self-love to do that. And we have been so, uh, in our, enculturated into, into believing that that's selfish, that we need to give to others first. And the thing is, we have far less to give when we're not taking good care of ourselves. And it took me a lot of years to learn that. So it's an ongoing practice. And and the other, and the thing I said at first, which is so important is awareness creates change. It's the first step to change, but we can't change anything until we're aware of it. And most of us, most of us in this culture are so outer focused. And I think if there's been a gift in COVID, and it certainly was a gift to me and a gift of many of the people I know, it's that time to have to settle down and settle in Mm -hmm. and to be quiet. Now, that's made a lot of people feel kind of crazy, and they don't know what to do with that because they've never been alone Mm -hmm. with themselves. And for others, it's created this incredible sense of spaciousness and this slowing down from always running, running, running and pushing. You know, the other thing is a, a friend the other night that I was talking to gifted me with these words, and they're from a poet named Sean Thomas Doherty, and it's called Why Bother? Because right now there is someone out there with a wound in the exact shape of your words. Isn't that exquisite? It's beautiful, yes. Someone out there with a wound and the exact shape of your word. It doesn't take anything to show eight random acts of kindness. Mm-hmm. The, uh, just recently, I went through Starbucks, and there was a new young woman, and you could tell she was really nervous and having a horrible day, and there weren't you know, any cars behind me. And I just looked at her, and I would have said this anyhow. I would have just stopped. I said, do you know you have gorgeous eyes? <laughs> I love your eyes. And she, she teared up. She said, nobody ever told me that before. And I said, you do. And I said, so just take some deep breaths and know you're so beautiful today and have a great day. And she, she reached out her hand and she said, can I pat your hand? I said, sure. And she said, you just made my day. I think I'll be able to get through today after all. Mm-hmm. It didn't cost me anything to do that. No. We need to start noticing the world outside of ourselves as well as anchoring and noticing what's inside inside of ourselves with that awareness. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love this conversation. Thank you so much. That's so inspiring. I try to do that all Thank the you. time and with, with 100% sincerity because I, I can see that in people. You, I can see and feel the pain and hurt in just random people that you encounter. And as you say, if you smile at them or just say something nice or funny or something to help lift right. them up, they remember that. And, you know, next Absolutely. time, yeah, they, they really do. It's a gift, not only for them, it's a gift for yourself because you come away knowing that you might just have improved someone's life. So we have so many gifts to give people that doesn't cost a dime. Absolutely. The other thing, if anyone's listening to this who has had or are currently having their own mental health challenges or challenges around self-esteem or or loss or whatever it is, because we all have challenges in life, in addition to taking really good care of yourself, it's important to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And it's important to to think backwards 
into those times and places in your life where people made a difference and to start practicing gratitude mm-hmm. because that, that literally shifts our endorphins. It shifts our nervous system. Yes, it does. Even if you only start with two pieces of gratitude, you know, in the morning and two at night, and you're going to find they slowly expand, and it shifts the feeling about yourself and the feeling about your day and how you're interacting with people. So start noticing. And thank goodness for you that you came across, as you say, the synchronicity. These people showed up in your life at the right moments to help guide you. And you know what that makes me wonder about, though, Laura, is when we've got these situations of institutional abuse, whatever that looks like, why are the entire staff going along with it? Why aren't individuals who are seeing this happening stepping forward or stepping out or or speaking up what is it that holds make creates like a whole institution to behave that way right you know i actually write about that in in one of the latter chapters of my book when i as i as i go through and talk about some of the research i stumbled upon and that's a question i've asked myself a lot and i think part of it has to do with moral courage Sydney Krampus was willing to risk her entire career and graduate school placement because she believed with every fiber of her being that what was happening to me was wrong. And some people don't even know what that means. You know, what does it mean? What, what is your bottom line? Where are your morals? We haven't been taught to examine them. You know, where does the buck stop? So that's one thing. The other thing is people get afraid. They get afraid of losing their job. They be, get afraid of um, being bullied or singled out, even in the workplace, particularly in dysfunctional systems, as state hospitals were. Mm-hmm. And so, so most of it was fear. It's, it's driven by fear. And what's happening is literally the primitive part of our brain is running our life. Mm-hmm. And we were born for more than that. We were born to evolve. And, and the, we now know from brain images that we can, and it doesn't take, take that many practices, shifting that much to evolve to what we came here to be. And, and, and so, I, so I think that there's, it's a complicated question, and it's a really important question. I think it's fear. Sometimes it's resentment. One of the things that happened a lot at Elgin, they never had enough chairs, and I was in a ward with 150 women, and... <sighs> And everyone was on so many drugs. I was on Thorazine, Stelazine, Melaril, Librium, and Dilat oh, all at the same time. Oh. You, become, you become a zombie. Yep. And not only were the attendants, I think, terrified of the population that was there, mm-hmm. but we far outnumbered them. Wow. We were so drugged, there wasn't a thing we could do. But they were fearful. And when they weren't out kicking the hell, kicking the hell out of people, and being very violent to them, they were literally behind a glass-barred window that you see couldn't get to them. As though we we had any intention to hurting them. Mm -hmm. Wow, it's like a real live cuckoo's nest with Nurse Ratchet, right? Absolutely. In fact, I think it's it, the place where I was was even worse, worse than, than cuckoo's that. nest. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. And one one of, one of the things I found out. Um, through a lot of the research I did at the State Archival Library about Elgin, is that they, well, during, while I was there, they were lucky to have one doctor 
every 500 to 1,000 patients. Oh, my gosh. And the same for nursing. Oh. And so all the wards were literally run, run by, the... by attendants mm -hmm. who were not trained in the use of pharmaceuticals. Yep. So they overused them oh. out of their fear in order to subdue someone who was agitated. And they they treated us as, as prisoners. Yep. And, and prison prison guards do that today. And so much of it is fear. Yep. And I know I'm not on the team that's going to do this, but we've done a lot of work through the Center for Mind-Body Medicine in Indiana at Eskenazi Health, which is the largest um, public health care system in the United States. And they have transformed their system. So it's an amazing system. Well, the next stage, of, and I was on the team for that, the next stage of that is working with prison guards and prisoners in, in the state of Indiana. Mm. Because we think it can change. And we've worked with military and um, people who are working with the military as well as people with uh, unbelievable trauma. A small team of people also worked with people, um, some of the, the Capitol Police that were there at the day of the riots mm -hmm. around the election. And we know, we see again and again that people can change when they're given the tools mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and the support. Oh my gosh, thank you for surviving and thriving. Thank you. Before we begin to wrap up, I want to make sure we're not missing anything, though, that you wanted to talk about. You know, there's one other thing I, I would like to say, and that's when I was three, that's when the first horrendous thing happened in my life. My, my uncle shot himself in front of my mother and I, and then my mother left me in the house alone, oh. and a raging blizzard came up, and it was Thanksgiving Day, and my aunt rushed to the house to see... Uh, why we hadn't shown up for Thanksgiving and found his dead body, went halfway up the stairway calling, and oh. nobody answered. I had been thrown in my crib upstairs. I had just turned three in October, and this was November. And she told the sheriff she'd check the house, so he didn't check the house. The coroner came and took the body. I got out of the bed at some point because I was hungry and looking for my mother, went down the stairs. I had a broken collarbone. didn't know that. I knew my shoulder hurt. And then I was able to get a, a loaf of bread off the table and went looking for my mother, couldn't find her, and tried to open the front door, and a, there was a literal blizzard. This was in northern Minnesota. Oh. And uh, a huge dr um, drift of snow blew in, so I could neither get outside because it was so st deep and so cold, nor could I close the door. Oh. And, I was, and I was sitting on the floor sucking my thumb, and rocking back and forth and crying, and I literally saw something that I had never, ever forgotten, some kind of ethereal presence that quietly told me to get away from the door, to go back up the stairs on my bottom backwards so that I wouldn't fall, and get back into my bed and cover up. And that became the foundation of my life, the opening of the door. Mm. And, it's, and it's a metaphor for keeping that door open between this realm and what we think of as other. And we now know so much about quantum physics. There's such amazing teachers out there to help people. But that, that became the foundation of my life, and I want to leave, leave people with that. And I want to remind people that when we're first born, when we're little, when we're, say, up to about age four and five, before we're put in school, 
everything is miraculous and brand new to us. And we're in touch with who we really are, which is essence, which is pure essence. And we're in touch with that. And then slowly as we're socialized by schooling, education, and by families and culture, we forget who we really are. But that's who we really are. And what mind-body approaches and so many spiritual approaches, like you know, on my website, I'm going to be listing a whole lot of resources for people. But um, it's really important to remember that we are spiritual beings having this ex- having this human experience. And when we be- really deeply begin to understand that and see the world and experience the world from that place, it shifts everything. And then we don't have any difficulty being kind to our neighbor. Mm-hmm. It's just automatic. It's not something we have to think about. Mm-hmm. It's just something that lives through us. I wanted to share that to, to end on a positive note and, and, to, and to leave people with an invitation. Oh, thank you. That's so beautiful. And let's invite them over to your website. So share where they can find out more about you and get a copy of your book and, and learn from you. Thank you. It's lauradevore.com, L-O-R-A-D-E-V like Victor, O-R-E, lauradevore.com. Laura DeVore, you are awesome. I'm so happy you found us and that you submitted your book, Darkness Was My Candle, An Odyssey of Survival and Grace. It's a beautiful title. I love that as well. Laura DeVore, website is lauradevore.com. Thank you for today. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for helping all of the people in this world that you help. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you too. Thanks so much.